morning to you. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. It's a special week. I look forward to the festivities and the celebration that we'll engage in with one another, especially on Thursday. But today, this fourth Sunday of Advent, we come to the final part of the sermon series that we've been going through in these four Sundays called Conversing with Advent. And as we've reflected upon this conversation that happens between the Virgin Mary and the angel Gabriel in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, so far what we've seen is that Gabriel has done most of the talking. He has said, the Lord is with you, Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary. Nothing will be impossible with God, Mary. Today, Mary is going to get the last word, and it's a pretty good one. Here's what Mary says very simply. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, a few weeks ago, um, our Surge School gathering kicked off with a discussion about records, as in vinyls. I used to collect vinyls in college. I had a record player. In fact, uh, Christy and I would, would listen to, to vinyl sometimes as we were dating. And then actually on the night that we got engaged, we went to a record store and uh, purchased a Miles Davis album, and it's hanging on our wall to this day. Well, the reason I bring this up is because when I hear those words from Mary, let it be, my, my first thought is to go to Paul and to John and to George and to Ringo, <laughs> right? We're familiar with this, right? Now, I'm not going to sing this for you this morning, but I want you to be reminded of these lyrics. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. I love that song. And the backstory to this song is really quite fascinating. When I've heard those lyrics in the past, uh, let it be, truthfully, I thought that that was a reference to the Virgin Mary, as it's not uncommon for Christians, especially Roman Catholics, to talk about Mary as mother, Mother Mary. And what made me think that way even more is that Mary herself is known for these words, let it be. Surprisingly, that's not what the song is a reference to. Some of you may know this. Paul McCartney and John Lennon, they wrote this song together. It was the very last single that they released before the Beatles broke up. And when he was asked about his inspiration for this song, Paul said that he had a dream about his mother in 1968 where she was speaking tender words to him. His mother had died 12 years earlier of cancer when Paul was 14. Do you know what his mother's name was? Mary. Mother Mary. For Paul, this song is especially about comfort. McCartney, that is, not the apostle. I don't, I don't know what the apostle Paul thought about this song. <laughs> especially when we consider the circumstances of Paul McCartney's mother's death, we can see how this song is something that encourages the listeners to not be overcome in times of trouble, but to let it be, to let things be, or perhaps to let things go, to move on. There's a sense in which we might interpret uh, the Virgin Mary's words to Gabriel in a similar way in terms of comfort. 
Gabriel has told her news which is dramatically going to alter Mary's life. What she thought her life would be and how she thought it would go is going to change. Now, of course, Gabriel's words are, are, are good promises, not, not bad ones, but it certainly did complicate things, right? And it's possible that despite how magnificent of a blessing it was to have been chosen by God to carry the Messiah, that Mary wouldn't have wanted it. She might have preferred something normal. She might have preferred to go without the stigma of a virgin birth. She might have preferred not to have a sword pierce her heart, as Simeon foretold. And thus, when Mary says, let it be, it could be that her words acted as a sort of self-comfort. Rather than arguing with God or indulging herself in self-pity, she says to herself, let it be. However, more than just a, a mere acceptance of difficulty and more than just a willingness to move on, what, what Mary's statement speaks to most of all is this. It speaks to submission. Submission to the will of God in her life. Let it be to me, God, according to your word. If we were to sit down with a long list of biblical topics and themes in front of us and then to choose which ones were our favorite, I suspect submission wouldn't make the cut. It's not really our favorite word, is it? Unless perhaps we find ourselves in roles and positions in which others are supposed to submit to us and maybe we don't mind talking about it so much anymore. And yet despite our discomfort with this word submission, we cannot redact it from the pages of Scripture. To do so would actually cause us harm, as we'll talk about more this morning. Many times in Christian circles, especially very conservative ones, evangelical ones, the most common time submission is discussed is when we're talking about marriage, as in wives submit yourselves to your husbands. While submission certainly does make an appearance in the scripture in reference to the context of marriage, submission most of all is spoken as something that is supposed to characterize all of our lives, all aspects of our lives, and both male and female. So what is it? Well, let's talk about this morning what submission is, and then we'll talk about why it matters. Our English word submission, it, it comes from a Latin word, submittere which actually helps us to see really clearly what this word means. The, the prefix sub, as you might know, means under, like submarine, under the water. Well, mitere means to send. Mitere is where we get this word mission, which means to be sent out with a purpose. Therefore, we can see how this word submission comes together. Essentially, it means to be under the mission of another. To be under the mission of another. To submit is to bend your will to the will of another. Richard Foster, in his classic book, The Celebration of Discipline, he defines submission as this. This is great. The ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get your own way. Don't you love that? The ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get your own way. He actually... Uh, lists submission as one of the spiritual disciplines, something we're called to practice in order that we might know God more deeply and become more like him. 
we probably would all acknowledge and agree that the scriptures teach submission, namely that human beings are called to submit to God. We are, after all, not robots. God didn't program us to carry out the duties that he told us to do. Instead, he gave us a free will. But God's design was that we would submit that will to his will, that we would willingly bend our desires to his good and perfect desires as our creator and our God. And so our, our mission, hear me, our mission as humans made in God's image is to be under God's mission. That's our mission, to be under God's mission, to submit. Submission is therefore not a dirty word. It's God's good and beautiful design. You know, what do we see happen right there in Genesis 3, not long after God creates? We see evil beckoning Adam and Eve not to submit. The serpent came and, and told Adam and Eve that God was not worth submitting to. He told them that God did not have their best interest in mind, that God did not really love them, that submitting to God was foolish, not wise, and that doing what they wanted with their lives was the place where freedom would be found. And when faced with that decision to submit to God's good and beautiful design or to exercise her own will, what did Eve choose? Eve chose the latter. And Adam, right there with her. A failure to submit ruined the world. It ruined the world. What's remarkable is that where Eve, our first mother, failed, Mary succeeds. And in that way, she is very much like our second mother, the new Eve. God came to Mary through Gabriel, and he promised to do this extraordinary thing in her body and in her family. And his purposes were good and beautiful. But, but what might the serpent have said to Mary if he were there in that moment? Do you think God would really choose someone like you? God must really not care about you to make you give up your plans and do something crazy stupid like that. What will Joseph think? You know he's not going to believe you. You're going to end up pregnant and divorced. No. Mary refused to listen to the impossibility and the discomfort of her circumstances. She refused to listen to the deceitful voice of evil, and instead she believed God. Let it be to me according to your word, God. Now this statement of submission, let it be to me, it might seem to us on the surface like it's something primarily passive. Like we give up our way and God gets his way. Now that's true, but it's only a part of the picture. I want you to imagine a soccer game, all right? Submission is not like one team forfeiting and letting the other team win. It's actually more like one team changing sides. You leave your team and you go to the other team in order to accomplish the purposes of that team. And in that way, submission is not passive. It's active. It is taking your will 
in placing it under the direction of God's will, and therefore we join God's mission. God's not just doing things to us. We are doing things with God. That requires much more than just admitting that God exists and that he's more powerful than you, and so you just admit defeat and surrender yourself to the inevitable. No. It requires the faith to change sides and to obey God's purposes for your life. We see that in Mary. Mary, like so many of our spiritual fathers and mothers who have walked by faith in God, consider the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Mary sets us this wonderful example of the beauty of bending our will to God's will and coming under his mission. Now, as important as Mary's example is, and it is, it is not the most important one that we have. You see, Mary's son, Jesus, the son of God, sets us this supreme example of submission. And we need to just acknowledge for a moment how ridiculous that is. Jesus, who is God, shows us what submitting to God looks like. That's wild. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's submission. Every day of his life, without exception, Jesus perfectly bent his will, his desires, his thoughts, his actions, to the will of God the Father. And perhaps there's no more striking example of this than when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. In Luke 22, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours. Just as a lack of submission ruined the world, so submission saved it. Our salvation through the cross was paid for in blood by Jesus' submission to the Father. That's amazing. You see that? That's amazing. Jesus reverses the curse. The wonderful spiritual theologian Henry Nouwen, he writes in his book, The Selfless Way of Christ, in the center of our faith as Christians stands the mystery that God chose to reveal the divine mystery by unreserved submission to the downward pull, or what Nouwen calls the downward mobility of the Christian life. And he continues by saying, God not only chose an insignificant people to carry the word of salvation through the centuries, Israel, he not only chose a small remnant of those to fulfill God's promises, not only chose a humble girl in an unknown town in Galilee to become the temple of the word, but God also chose to manifest the fullness of divine love in a man whose life led to a humiliating death outside the walls of the city. That's submission. That same unreserved submission that Nowen comments on which Jesus demonstrated, it's actually the same submission that Jesus calls us to. 
He models it for us so that we would live it out. And perhaps the greatest instance of where Jesus makes this kind of submission explicit is in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, deny herself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is talking about submission. Guys, this is, this is the world's worst sales pitch. <laughs> Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me and not yourself. And lose your life. This is the path of following Jesus, and it's a path of submission. There is no redacting that. Christy and I have enjoyed watching The Mandalorian, a new TV series based on the Star Wars universe. And the main character in that TV series is a part of a religious movement called The Way of the Mandalore, hence Mandalorian. And this religious sect has a unique set of beliefs, the most well-known of which is that they never remove their helmets and show their faith face in the presence of another human being. And Mandalorians who adhere to the way they say something peculiar when they're about to do something in accordance with their ideals, especially if it's costly. They say, this is the way. This is the way. Whenever I hear this in this TV series, I think actually of the earliest Christians. Because in fact, the earliest believers before they were known as Christians at Antioch, they were known as people of the way. And what the earliest believers would have understood about submission is that it's inherent and indispensable to the way of Jesus. This is the way. There is no other way than the way of the cross. This is the way. You see, better than us, Jesus' followers in that time, they, they knew what the word Lord meant. Do you know what we're saying every time we say Lord Jesus or Jesus is Lord? We're saying Jesus is our master. We exist because of him. We exist for him. There is no independence in who we are. We are utterly dependent upon Jesus, our Lord. And that makes us uncomfortable. We're independent. We're free. We're autonomous. And so we get nervous when we talk about submission. We get nervous that we won't be in control. We get nervous that we won't be free. We get nervous that we won't be happy. And thus we let modern psychology convince us that submission ends in a loss of personal identity and things like self-hatred. Here's the thing we have to understand about biblical submission, and so few people have. Biblical submission to God, it's not mindless, and it's not miserable. Jesus actually tells us that in losing your life for his sake, you gain it. In denying yourself for his sake, you find joy and fulfillment. In taking up your cross for his sake, you find freedom. That's not misery. It's what John Piper calls hedonism. You're seeking your own fulfillment in Christ, just not in other things. 
See, the gospel is counterintuitive like this. It's, it's upside down. Submitting to the will of God is actually the place where we are truly ourselves. Biblical submission, it's grounded in the gospel, which far from stripping us of our identity, actually give us, gives us the actual identity we were created for. It's the identity we lost. Far from leading to self-hatred, biblical submission needs, leads to a knowledge and uh, an acceptance of how deeply we are loved and valued by God our Father. It's not mindless. It's not misery. It's joy. It's joy. Now, quite remarkably, the Bible, it teaches that, that our call to submission, it doesn't just end with submitting to God. It actually just begins there. Martin Luther famously said, a Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. And yet, a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Now, how can that be? That doesn't seem to make sense. What Luther is getting at here is that there's this dynamic about following Christ where we are set free from following anyone or anything else other than Jesus himself. And yet, serving Christ, it leads us to freely, not out of coercion, not out of manipulation, but freely to serve everyone around us without exception. And thus, it's, it shouldn't be surprising to us that the New Testament is riddled with calls to submission. Submit to your spiritual leaders. Submit to those in your household. Submit to one another in the church. Submit to the leaders and the governments of the world. Submit even to the people of the world. And surprisingly, Jesus sets the example of this kind of submission too. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, submissive to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is wild. Paul tells us that Jesus, who is God, submitted himself not only to God, but also to us. What? Jesus submitted himself to our good. Jesus, who is the maker and redeemer of all things, submitted his needs to my needs. That's stupid. Why would he do that? It shouldn't be that way. Why would he do it? He would do it to show us the true nature of submission. Biblical submission to God or to others, it's not done out of fear or of manipulation or out of powerlessness or whatever else. Submission is done out of faith in God 
and love of those around you. The spirit of submission, and I want you to hear this, the spirit of submission is about valuing others enough to serve them. Valuing others enough to serve them. We submit to what we value. If we don't submit to God's will, should we claim to value Him? If we don't submit ourselves to the wills of others, should we claim to value them? Submission is God's good and beautiful design. I know we struggle to understand it, but we can't redact it. When I was in the fifth grade, I, I learned how to play percussion instruments, and I played in the concert band all the way until eighth grade. Then in high school, uh, I picked up the guitar, and I played drums for a little bit as well, to the chagrin of my parents. Uh, but at that point, or at this point, I think if I could go back, or indeed if I could learn an instrument today, if I had more time to, to do something like that, what I'd want to do is learn a stringed instrument. I'd really like to play the violin, or the cello, probably the cello. Cohen's godparents, Karen and Ken, who we uh, knew in Birmingham, uh, they have a cello at their home. And whenever we would go over to their home for dinner, uh, I would enjoy listening to Ken play us what he knew how to play on the cello. And while Ken would be the first to tell you that he's no yo-yo ma, and it's true he isn't, he's uh, very average, still, it's amazing to me how beautiful were the sounds that came out of that instrument when he played it. As I've been reflecting on submission this week, this is the image that comes to my mind. It's the image of a cello. Submission is very much like what a cello does to the cellist. You see, the cello does not make music on its own. The cello doesn't choose what song it will play or for how long. The cello is valuable on its own, but it doesn't fulfill its purpose until the cellist sits down to play it. And in that moment, what the cello does is it puts itself under the mission of the cellist. It is at the cellist's disposal. Whatever song the cellist chooses, it's what the cello plays. Whatever strings the cellist plucks or draws with his bow, it produces the notes that the cello makes. The cello is lifeless. It's silent on its own. And yet when the master cellist holds it in his hands, the cello is alive with music. Now let me ask you, do you think that that cello finds this to be mindless and miserable? Do you think the cello can't reach its full potential or find fulfillment because it surrenders its will to the will of the artist? Of course not. Being played by the cellist is what the cello was made for. It's what it was made for. That's why we enjoy the cello. We don't like to look at it. We like to hear it. And we like to hear the artist who plays it. 
Biblical submission to God is like that. It's like that. When I look at Mary and the way in which she responds to God's call upon her life, I am deeply humbled by her courage and her faith. And do you know what she's saying to God? She's saying, Lord, let me be an instrument in your hands. Let me be an instrument in your hands, God. And what an amazing symphony God played using Mary. I mean, gosh, we are still enjoying and reaping the benefits of the music God made with Mary, are we not? What could God do with more people like that? What beautiful music could God make when we say yes to him, the master artist? Let it be. Let it be. Amen.